to take a couple of weeks to give you a two-part Christmas marriage, uh, Christmas message, if I can. Uh, hopefully, you're married to Christ, right? You are the bride of Christ if you're in Him this morning. But Isaiah chapter 9 is an incredible passage, and I've entitled, uh, the sermon title this morning is The Journey Toward Christmas. The journey toward Christmas, this week we're going to look mainly at verses 1 through 5, and then next week we're going to really take our time with verse 6 and 7. And so I'll read the whole passage to you this morning, and then we'll spend our time on verses 1 through 5. Here's what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 9, starting verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of this government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we're excited this morning to read Isaiah chapter 9. We see some familiarity there, yet we also see a few verses that we want to understand better. So I pray as we open up this idea of the journey toward Christmas, that you would allow us to learn what you want us to learn from this incredible prophecy that gave such hope and consolation to Israel, that our hearts might be encouraged as we look to Jesus Christ this day as our only hope and as our only Savior. So we come. Today, with all of our heartache and pain, we come today with all of our sin and shame. We come today just as we are. We desire to be in your presence in such a way that your loving kindness would be spread over us like the cloak of the righteousness of Christ, that we would be transformed from the inside out, that we would have incredible hope and great joy this day because of your love for us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, the journey toward Christmas for Mary and Joseph was a very difficult one. First, Mary was told that she was to have a baby and she wasn't even married. Then Joseph had to make a decision to whether he would continue their engagement or put her away secretly or even have her be stoned to death. And the only way that the marriage still came about as planned was that Joseph had a dream in which he was instructed to take Mary as his wife. 
This all took place, as you know, in Nazareth. And many of you may well remember Nathaniel's question in John 1:46: Can anything good come out of Nazareth? At this point, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census was to be taken in all the inhabited earth. So Joseph had to saddle his wife on a donkey, nine months pregnant, for the 65-mile journey through the sand and the rocks down to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown. I'm telling you, that must have been some kind of journey. Anybody been pregnant? Anybody, anybody been pregnant for nine months? Can you imagine getting on a donkey for 65 miles? I mean, most pregnant mamas probably wouldn't want to get in the car for 65 miles and drive down a nice paved road. But to go across the desert with all of the different challenges that you would face on a land animal, not on a land rover, a land animal. Can you imagine? There would be no Starbucks along the way. There would be no peppermint mochas. There would be no eating at Stonefire or In-N-Out. It would have been difficult sleeping even at night in some type of makeshift shelter in some ancient sleeping bag with no cushion. It's before REI. Can you imagine what that would have just been like, just that trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem? And not only that, when they finally reached Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn. There was no room service. There were no friends to stay with. There was no hospital that we're aware of that had some nice-looking labor and delivery floor. There was no doctor. There was no labor and delivery nurse and no midwife to be found. And so guess who had to birth the baby? Now, I know Mary gave birth to the baby, but most likely, as best we can tell, it was probably Joseph with no training, with no experience, and who was probably scared out of his wits, who had to deliver the baby. The journey towards Christmas was indeed a difficult one. And the truth is, it was difficult all through the years for this moment to come. Israel had faced distress and darkness. They had faced their share of doom and gloom. They had been enslaved to the Egyptians for 430 years. They had wandered through the wilderness for another 40 years. And when they finally came into the promised land, they had to go through cycles of defeat and of oppression during the time of the judges. And when they finally got their first king, he walked away from God and was killed on the battlefield. When they got their second king, he committed adultery. When they got their third king, he built temples to his wife's foreign gods. And the northern kingdom at that point split away from the southern kingdom as there's now a divided kingdom in the history of Israel. The northern kingdom faced incredible judgment from God and never actually recovered their spiritual roots. The southern kingdom of Judah was now also being threatened with the judgment of God because of their own disobedience. But you know what? Tactical defeats lead to terrific victories. Ordained trials lead to overwhelming grace. Crushing blows create a Godward dependence like nothing else come, like nothing else can. Thick darkness thins out in the light of Jesus' face. Earthly woes often result in heavenly winds. And maybe you are struggling this year in 2020 in your own personal journey toward Christmas. Have the ups and downs of 2020 ruined your Christmas? 
Has this year been a cycle of misery and hardship for you? Have you had trouble seeing the sun in the midst of the storms of chaos and confusion? Have you at any point this year felt like you were in over your head and you couldn't touch bottom? If so, this message is for you. What we'll look at here in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, this week and next week, is the bright and shining truth of God's love for you. This prophecy, for unto us a child is born, in verse 6, is to pierce your night with the radiance of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This passage will bring hope to your soul, stability to your life, and rejoicing to your spirit. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God has purposely planned all the events of 2020 for his own glory. And what may seem like a failure is a fantastic reminder that God's wisdom is greater than yours. And the same events that have brought misery also bring a refreshing reminder that we don't trust in horses and we don't trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. I was so kindly reminded of the sovereignty of God in the midst of trial as I was reading in my personal devotion from Psalm 139, that blessed chapter, those verses you know well, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. A lot of times we think about that passage about life beginning in conception, and we should. We're, we're beautifully and wonderfully made. But we also need to be reminded from that same passage that God is in control of this world. And God is in control of your life. And all of his works are wonderful. And just as he delicately knit you together in your mother's womb, he directed every aspect of your life in 2020. Every day of this year was written in his book, to his sovereign glory and implementing his sovereign wisdom and his decree. There's not been one surprise for God this year. And so this morning, as we're looking at verses one through five here in Isaiah nine, I want to to help share with you four truths that you need to learn in your journey to Christmas in 2020. Are you ready? Here's truth number one, from gloom to glory. That first blank, if you are taking notes, just simply says the theme of Isaiah. So we touched on it already, maybe just a little bit, but we understand that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And he's talking about the nation of Israel. So let me just step back for a second and give you a big picture here of what's going on in Isaiah. The basic theme of the book of Isaiah is found in his name, which means salvation is from the Lord. Isaiah the prophet is described as the Saint Paul of the Old Testament. Isaiah the book is sometimes called the Mount Everest of Hebrew prophecy. Many of you may already know that Isaiah functions as a miniature Bible. And by that, I just simply mean that Isaiah has 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. The first 39 of those chapters correspond to the 39 Old Testament books and emphasize God's righteous character, his holy nature, and his judgments. 
The last 27 chapters of Isaiah correspond to the 27 New Testament books and demonstrate God's glory, his compassion, and his amazing grace. Isaiah's prophetic ministry covers 60 years from 740 to 680 BC and coincides with the reign of four kings who served the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah began his ministry near the end of Uzziah's reign and it continued through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now during that time, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria in 722 BC and never fully recovered as a nation. In the New Testament, the northern kingdom became referred to as the Samaritans who were looked down upon for intermarrying with the Gentiles and worshiping at altars in other places other than in Jerusalem. Isaiah was written to warn Judah not to fall into the same sins of her northern sister. Isaiah commended, or excuse me, uh, Isaiah condemned empty ritualism and idolatry that many were falling into. And even though God delivered Judah from Sennacherib and the Assyrian forces, Isaiah foresaw the coming Babylonian captivity of Judah because of their own sin. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the prophet announces God's judgment upon immoral and idolatrous people, beginning with Judah, then to the nations around Judah, and then on the whole world. But in the last 27 chapters, Isaiah shines light on a Messiah who will come and he will rescue his people from their sins. There will be a savior who will bear a cross, who will be crucified, who will be resurrected from the dead, and who will reign supremely over all. And while Isaiah would announce the overthrow of Judah, God would also remain faithful to his covenant by preserving a godly remnant and promising salvation and deliverance through the coming Messiah. The Savior will come out of Judah, and he will accomplish the work of redemption and restoration. And even the Gentiles will come into his light and into the universal blessing for all people who finally come to fruition through the salvation that Christ provides. Other than Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which we'll take a closer look at next week, Isaiah 53, 6 is the other theme verse of this book. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No matter who you are today, you are a sinner. Each one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. We have all turned to our own way, thinking and believing that our way is better than God's way. But the good news is that we understand verse six says, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And that just reminds us this morning that there is hope for you today. There's hope for every lost soul. There is hope for every struggling soul because the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And that means that if you are in Christ this morning, that Jesus died in your place, that he bore your sin, that he paid your sin debt on the cross so that you could have new life. 
Now, with all of this historical context in place, this passage now, I believe, begins to open up to us in even a more beautiful, comprehensive way that brings us even greater clarity. And so now that we've kind of seen the overarching theme of Isaiah, let's look now a little bit closer at verse 1. Your next blank says, the former time. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Let's just pause right there. What is he talking about, Isaiah, when he says what's going on in the former time? Well, this verse is discussing the gloom and the anguish of Israel. They face incredibly difficult times as, we've rest, as we have referenced. And now the Assyrian invasion of northern Israel was a direct result of their sin and was beginning to threaten Judah as well. And we can be reminded this morning that sin has its consequences. When you disobey God, you don't uh, have his blessings necessarily. You have his, 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 uh, his condemnation or his judgment. Now, now, ultimately, if you're in Christ, there's grace for you. But you have to understand that when you disobey God and he's not front and center in your life, there are consequences that you have to pay. And so God, with his people Israel, is saying, I love you, but I have to discipline you. I love you, but you're going to suffer great difficulty because of your sin. And so when it says in the former time, let me give you a little bit more immediate context. Look at chapter 8, verse 11, where it says, The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... So we'll just pause right there. Again, he's saying, hey, listen to me. Isaiah, you are not to walk in the sinful ways of Israel. Verse 11 is saying, listen, these guys had sinned against God. They had worshiped other gods. They had committed adultery. They had refused to walk in God's statutes. And so God's warning, Isaiah, don't go down that same path. Look at verse 12 and 13. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So in those two verses, Israel did not believe that God would actually judge his own people. They're like a modern day teenager. They thought they could get by with disobeying their parents and have no consequences from it. Right? And the, the deal is you just can't. You can't hide from God. They, they, they didn't believe that the prophecies that Isaiah was giving to them would actually come true in their lifetime. They thought it was a conspiracy. So verse 12 says, uh, basically, you shouldn't call that a conspiracy because you need to fear God and not fear um, these other nations that are coming against you. You need to ultimately fear God. And so they, they couldn't believe that God would actually allow a pagan nation to invade them, to dominate them, and to destroy their kingdom. And they thought that this prophecy and warning was all a conspiracy. They didn't believe what Jeremiah, Isaiah, or the other prophets who had told them repeatedly that no one can bail you out from your predicament except God himself. You must have complete reliance on him. And then in verses 14 through 15, Isaiah says to the people, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So in those verses, he's saying that God alone can become their sanctuary. And he will do this by sending his ultimate deliverer, 
the Lord Jesus Christ to come to their aid. But instead of believing God's word about the Messiah, they actually stumbled on this very truth. And they did not receive the cornerstone. But they rejected both the prophecy of Christ and the presence of Christ when he did actually come in person. And so for this reason, Israel would fall and be broken. They would be trapped and they would be taken. First, the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And when the Messiah finally did come, they rejected him, and they had him crucified. Verses 16 through 18, he tells Isaiah, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah is saying, take the prophecies of this book of Isaiah, God's word, and teach it to those who will indeed listen. There is a remnant of those who will hear and obey the teaching of God, and they will be signs and portents in Israel of the majesty of God who dwells on Mount Zion. There will always be a few who will walk the straight and narrow path and who will not defile the ways of our great God. But things had gotten so bad for unbelieving Israel that they wanted to turn to the dark side. Verse 19 says, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So in other words, these people, unbelieving Israel, was so dark that they were willing to talk to witches, if you will, they were willing to talk to mediums and talk to necromancers, which is basically trying to talk with the dead. They trusted more in witchcraft than they trusted in God. They trusted more in trying to talk to necromancers and mediums than they did to talk and listen to the living God. And in verse 20, Isaiah is reminding them that they must look to God's word, verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So he's saying they have no light because they are pursuing darkness instead of pursuing the truth that is only contained in scripture. And when things didn't go their way, unbelieving Israel got more and more angry at God. Here's what happens. Disobedience leads to distrust. Rebellion leads to ruin. Rejection leads to retribution. And so in verse 21, it says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. So here in verse 21, we're seeing that Israel now begins to curse God. They are wretched, they are poor, they are blind, and they are naked like the church of Laodicea. And they're looking up to heaven and they're shaking their fists in God's face saying, we don't trust you and we don't believe in your word anymore. And then in verse 22, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the distress and the darkness and the gloom and the anguish that is all a result of their own sin of unbelief. 
This is what happens when a nation turns from God and they begin to turn to their own wisdom and to their own ways and they ignore what God has told us about the moral code, about how we should live. And more importantly, about the Savior who alone can deliver us from our own earthly wisdom. And they simply did not trust God. They did not take God at his word. They tried to do it on their own and they miserably failed. And instead of seeing that and repenting, they hardened their hearts. And so God hardened the consequences against them by bringing Assyria into the northeastern part of Israel, into Zebulun and Naphtali to crush his people. And this is what will happen in your life if you live your life on your own. If you are pursuing your own sin, God will crush you. No one can deliver you except God alone. No one can help you except God. Not your money, not your status in this world, not your friends, not your good looks, not your health, not your good works. They will get you absolutely nowhere in a spiritual battle against sin and against evil. But in the midst of this challenging place, God gives credible hope. Remember, tactical defeats lead to terrific victories. And ordained trials lead to overwhelming grace. And so while we see the former time of Israel is looking pretty dim, your next blank says the latter time. So the very end now of verse 1. But in the latter time, somebody say, Adam, please get to the latter time. All right, you want to get to the latter time. But in the latter time, he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so this latter time is a reference to the arrival of the Messiah. We are now living in the latter days, which extend from Jesus' first advent all the way till his second advent when he comes again. And we know that this refers to Jesus because... You ready? Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. We know this is a direct reference to Jesus Christ because Matthew 4, 12 through 16 quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Matthew writes. Now, when they heard that John had been arrested, when he heard, that would be Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so we see in this passage, Jesus, having been born in Bethlehem, who grew up in Nazareth, who is now in Capernaum by the sea, is actually in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. In a later time, about 700 years later after Isaiah's prophecy, there would be a glorious Savior who would come, and he would come the way of the sea, which is a reference to a major international highway running through this region. 
the Assyrian soldiers took that same route when they evaded the northern kingdom. And from that same area, the Messiah will arise and he will wipe away the gloom and the darkness brought on by the Gentile domination. Jesus will minister on both sides of the Jordan as is demonstrated in the Gospels as he ministered in the Decapolis and it's a major focus of his ministry is in Galilee. Again, this is a reminder that so many times the same area of your life that was destroyed can be resurrected. I was talking with a couple recently who reminded me of how God brings beauty out of ashes as the husband told me that he lost his wife to a terminal illness and his wife also lost her husband to to unfaithfulness. Then God, in his perfect providence, brought this husband and this wife together through their difficult trials into a delightful marriage. And if you think of some of the hardest roads that you have faced in your own life, and now you reflect on what God has taught you about his character and how he has brought you through, you may say to me this morning, well, Adam, I still feel like I'm in the doom and I'm in the gloom. And I would say to you this morning, then look to Jesus. There's nowhere else to look. There's nowhere else to go. Look to the glorious Christ. Remember his love for you. And remember just as he was faithful with Israel, though they had made a mess of their life and their nation, the same place he brought great discipline, he now brings great delight in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how you go from gloom to glory. And now I want you to see a second truth in this passage today, from darkness to light. Look at verse 2 here. We talk about your next blank, seeing the great light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Israel had walked in darkness for a long time. Ever since the northern kingdom split off, they never recovered their spiritual purity. From the first king, Jeroboam, all the way to 19 kings later in King Hoshea, they were all evil all the time. The northern kingdom was a mess, and they walked in darkness. They were prideful. They were idolatrous. They were murderous. They were adulterers. They were depraved. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, of Judah, had some good kings, and some bad kings. But because they did not keep the Sabbath and worship God and honor him alone, they eventually were taken into exile by the Babylonians for 70 years. But by God's grace, there will be a great light. And those who see it will be saved by that light. And Isaiah 42, 16 says, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know in paths that they have not known. And I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These things I do, and I do not forsake them. Isaiah 58 verse 8 says, Then your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And we know that this light is Jesus Christ. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let me ask you this morning, are you in darkness, or are you in the light? Have you seen the light of Jesus Christ? 
Have you opened your eyes this morning to focus your affection and your attention on him? He reveals himself to us through his word. And as you're struggling and as you're facing difficulty, it's only by coming back to the word of God time and time again to to read it, to meditate on it, to allow it to wash over your soul, to give you hope so that you can make it through your day. You can't make it in this life without looking to the light of Jesus Christ. And as we move from darkness to light, not only is it about seeing the great light, but it's about, your next blank, having the light shine on you. Notice how it says, those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them, a light shone. So when Jesus came, those who walked in darkness saw a great light. And when God's light shone on them, there was tangible proof of God's faithfulness. Though Israel as a whole had not been faithful to God, God had been faithful to his covenant people. God had promised Abraham land in Genesis 12, 7. And he had promised Abraham offspring in Genesis 12, 7 and in Genesis 13, 15. And God had promised Abraham that through him and that because of his faith and obedience that all the families of the earth would be blessed in Genesis 12, 3 and in Genesis 22, 18. And then we read in Galatians 3, 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And so we see that the offspring of Abraham, the seed that God referred to in Genesis and in the Abrahamic covenant is Jesus. And the blessing that God referred to is salvation through Jesus. And this is the light that shone on Israel and it shines on anyone who is in Christ this very day. The strength and the consolation of Israel is found in Jesus Christ. Your strength and your consolation can only be found in him. It was Simeon who said when he saw the baby Jesus, who Mary and Joseph brought to the temple for the rites of purification, held Jesus in his arms and he lifted him up to heaven. And in Luke 2, 29 through 32, Simeon said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Have you seen the great light? Is God's light shining on you through Christ? If you are in the light, then you should be walking in that light and your life should be demonstrating the fact that you are belonging to and walking in obedience to the Lord. And that ought to be evident in all of your life. It ought to be evident in your home. It ought to be evident in your marriage. It ought to be evident at your witness at work and in your neighborhood. I mean, every day I take my kids to school and I'm praying for them to write as we're pulling up to the school. And I'm just like, God, would you help our kids be salt and light? We want them to represent Christ. God, would you give them opportunities today to share Christ with somebody? That's what it's all about for each one of us, that we have the light shining on us so that we can be salt and light in this world. And we've got to understand that one way that we do that is that we need to be shining like stars 
according to Philippians 2.15, which means that we're doing everything without arguing or complaining, that we are to be blameless and innocent, that we're to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So how's your journey toward Christmas going? Have you traversed from gloom to glory? Have you transitioned from darkness to light? A third truth that we need to learn on our journey this morning to Christmas would be number three, from sadness to joy. Out of verse three, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Your first blank there is increase in numbers. They increase in numbers. God did indeed multiply the nation. God took one man, Abraham, and one woman, Sarah. And while Abraham was 100, and while Sarah was 90, God gave them Isaac. And on their, on their offspring, God built an entire nation. And I believe that verses 3 through 7 that the prophet Isaiah is looking partly at the first advent, and I believe that he is partly looking beyond at the second advent when Christ will come again. Instead of protecting a small remnant, God will one day expand and enlarge the nation. Instead of always experiencing sorrow and defeat when God's people embrace Christ as the Messiah, They will rejoice like reapers after collecting a great harvest. They will rejoice like soldiers after winning a great victory. And they will rejoice like prisoners of war after being released from their yoke of bondage. And that's what verse 3 is all about. In fact, Isaiah 26, 15 says, but you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation and you are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Again, I believe that some of this was fulfilled when God defeated Assyria and delivered Jerusalem in chapter 37. But the ultimate fulfillment is still in the future. This is spiritually realized in the New Testament church to some degree. But I also believe that there will be a physical realization in the redemption of ethnic Israel in the millennial kingdom. That's part of what Isaiah is all about. It's salvation now. He saves them from the Assyrians. It's salvation later in the person of Christ. And then it's salvation later again at the second coming when Christ comes and puts an end to all wars. There's constant movement in the book of Isaiah to take us further and further and further in our understanding. But we know that he will increase the nation. The second part here says that he increases in joy He increases in joy. Again, it says that not only will the nation be multiplied, they will increase in its joy. They will rejoice before you, again, as the joy of harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Listen to me this morning. Only God can increase your joy. Only God. According to John Piper, quote, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world, close quote. Only God can bring joy in your heart as the Holy Spirit produces in you new life and new perspective 
and a new purpose as you walk with Jesus Christ. And Israel's joy will increase when they look to God, trust in God, and receive God's greatest gift in Christ. And only when you see the light of Christ and have it shine on you can you truly rejoice before God. Joy is commanded. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Joy is experienced. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Joy is practiced. Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him from, for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. In the end of that chapter, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so we got to understand this morning, joy is commanded, joy is experienced, joy is practiced. And at the end of verse 3, it emphasizes the joy of the harvest. When a farmer makes a big harvest, that is a time where joy is often expressed. We see that when Boaz harvests the field in Ruth 3, verse 7, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Isaiah 9, verse 3, Isaiah 9, 3 uh, reminds us that God brings the joy. And his joy that he brings is even greater than the joy of the harvest. At least that gives us something to compare it to. You know what it feels like when you keep an eye on your 401k and it's increasing. And you know what it feels like when you have a business and it's increasing, and you know what it's like when your boss gives you a bonus, and your bank account's increasing, you're just kind of like, yeah, that's awesome, I'm feeling pretty good today, and, and the Bible said, hey, that's just a little taste, the joy that increases and in harvest is nothing compared to the joy that God brings to you every day, and not only that, not only are they glad at the harvest, they're glad, the end of verse three, when they divide the spoil, so that's talking about when an army conquers another nation, they possess those possessions for themselves. Their treasures now become your treasures and their resources become your resources. But we've got to understand that even greater than that is the joy that God brings through Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're looking for joy, look to Jesus. He loves you more than your friends, more than your family, more than your spouse. And if you're in Christ today, you need to understand that, that your journey toward Christmas might be a difficult one, but you've got to understand that Christmas is not about a date on a calendar, right? It's not about even the gifts that we receive and the songs that we sing. It's about rejoicing in the coming of Jesus Christ. That's where joy comes from. And so the final truth we see here in our journey is number four, from defeat to victory. Verse four, your next blank, the Lord has broken every bondage. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. If you remember, Israel had suffered many burdens. Israel had been oppressed many times. Israel had been in slavery in Egypt. Israel had been in many battles with the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Amalekites. Israel had to fight the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Perizzites. Yikes, right? Not to mention the Philistines. I mean, they had all kinds of trouble all the time. And yet at the end of verse four, Isaiah mentions that God has delivered Israel from Midian. Remember that one? 
Surely you remember the story of Gideon from Judges chapter 7 when Israel was oppressed and outnumbered by the Midianites. God gave them a great victory through Gideon and his 300-man army. And we read about it in Judges 7. So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. They had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in the hand, their hands. Then the three companies, 100 in each company, so 300 soldiers, blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. So we're understanding here that even though in the book of Isaiah, the northern kingdom is going to be conquered by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom is going to eventually be defeated by the Babylonians. <clears throat> eventually, God will bring, <clears throat> excuse me, a great victory to his people. And because of the great light that was coming in Jesus Christ, God's people will no longer be the losers, but they will be the winners. And eventually, God will free Israel from every yoke of bondage, every rod of every oppressor, and every captivity from every country, and Jesus will be king, and his kingdom will know no end, but Israel first must acknowledge him, and you must acknowledge Christ today as Lord over all as well. And so not only will the Lord break every bondage, but he will, your last blank, the Lord has vanquished every foe. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. I'm okay. All right, All right. verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So this verse is discussing how all the things that are used in battle will no longer be needed because all the wars will be over. Every boot of every soldier, every garment rolled in blood, Everything will be discarded and burned in the fire. The people of God will not need weapons of warfare because of the ultimate victory brought through Christ. Reminds me of Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. <clears throat> so we're reminded that we're saved from our enemies in Christ. So how will Israel be delivered? How will you be delivered? The answer is the same. By the birth of a baby. And that brings us to verses 6 and 7, where we read, For unto us a child is born. For to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas is no matter what Israel was going through, no matter what you're going through, we can find our hope in a baby who will be a great king and that we've got to remember that in the meantime, tactical defeats 
lead towards terrific victories and ordained trials lead us to overwhelming grace. If you're here this morning, I invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would turn from your sin today and that you would see Christ as your only savior and that you would realize that no matter what you're looking at, what you're facing today, there's no hope outside of Jesus. There's no hope in a vaccine. There's no hope in a political party. There's no hope in your bank account, but there's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's ordained every trial so that you can find your hope in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you'd like to receive Christ after we finish our last song, we'll have some people standing up here. We'd love to talk with you about how Christ can be your light today. If you're here and you're struggling and you'd like prayer in your life, you're having a difficult time with something in your life, we have people up here who wanna pray for you. We love you and we're gonna look to Christ together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, the joy of Christ and digging in a little bit more of a historical context as we're really setting the table for what I wanted to get to, which is verses six and seven, <clears throat> and yet seeing it a little deeper and seeing it a little broader somehow makes it a little bit more special that we realize the beauty of your faithfulness to your own people, Israel, and to their future in a future kingdom. And yet we know in the meantime, your kingdom reigns spiritually right now. And that we have the joy of being sons and daughters of the most high God. And that we have the joy right now of seeing the light of Christ and having your light shine on us. And so I pray that this week that we would be able to live like those stars in Philippians 2.15 by living a life that would be an example, not complaining or arguing, but we would be pure and holy in a twisted and crooked generation. And so I pray that today we could love each other and encourage each other and that we could go a lot deeper than some of the Hallmark Christmas movies that we see, though we enjoy them, Lord, some of us. <clears throat> but I pray that you would help us to see the depth and the beauty of this one who would come. You've given us a child. You've given us your son to die in our place so that we could have eternal life with you. Be glorified in the remainder of our time together this morning as we sing and fellowship together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.